Love is in the air, Makita. I love a bit of love, Desiree. I don't know whether we've discussed that, but I love a bit of love. <laughs> so romance is what we're talking about today. Yeah. Now, Makita, let me ask you this. Let's say you are deeply in love, but there is a chance that your family will be broken up and essentially destroyed if you make the relatively normal by today's standards decision to get married. What do you do? Oh, I feel like everything that we've sort of learned over the last few weeks would imply that sort of the closer we got to living a dignified life, that felt like that's when they came for us. Mm. And I feel like marriage would definitely fall in that camp and I think it would definitely deter me from making that move with my partner. I, I would be yeah. terrified to get married. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I completely get that. You know? I'd love to think that I was going to be like, I'm going to make a statement out of, I'm not going to make a statement out of nothing. I'm going to keep my head down and try to avoid trouble. Stay in love quietly. Yes, but in today's episode, we are going to explore the story of two lovers, William and Ellen Craft, who blurred the lines between both race and gender to make a daring and ingenious escape. I am so ready for this story today. Today we're joined by two guests. Barbara McCaskill is a professor of English at the University of Georgia. She teaches and writes about African-American literature and culture. And she's the author of Love, Liberation and Escaping Slavery, William and Ellen Craft in Cultural Memory. Hello, Professor. Hello, Barbara. Hello. It's wonderful to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Me too. We're so excited to have you here. And we are extremely honoured to also have Peggy Trotter Damond Priestley. Peggy is the great, great granddaughter of William and Ellen Craft. And she's joining us from California. Peggy, hello. Hello. Thank you. I'm so very pleased to be here today. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. It is such a privilege to have you with us today to help tell the story. So thank you. I have a quick first question for Barbara. What is it that got you interested in this particular story of William and Ellen Craft? I became enamored of their story for many of the reasons that you've already alluded to, but mainly because I immediately understood that they were working together. As activists, they were working together to tell their story. So I love a challenge. I love stories that have loose ends. And I plunged into it. And I've been working on that story, um, continuing, in fact, to do research on the crafts ever since. What a story, though. And Peggy, how did you find out about your great-grandparents? Was was this story talked about by the family? Do you remember when you first heard it? Yes, I was raised on this story by my mother and my her sister and by my grandfather, who is the eldest son of William and Ellen. We ended up reading about the story in the 1872 edition of William Stills, The Underground Railroad. But I didn't see the actual narration until, read the actual story in a book until about 1969. But I was raised on it, my brother and I, when we were small children. And as a matter of fact, we learned how to read by reading this story. Oh, wow. wow. Come on. So um, as to for anyone that doesn't know the story, I'm sure they're dying to hear it now. So where does this story begin? Peggy, what can you tell us where this story begins? This story begins in Macon, Georgia in 1848. William and Ellen were allowed to marry. Ellen was a house domestic slave and William was a carpenter 
apprentice in the nearby town. They met at some point when they were in their early 20s and they married under slave law, which they did never consider themselves really married at that point. And they fell in love and they were able to go about the town a little bit because of their status as domestic servants. And they took advantage of the fact that they interacted with the white slaveholding community. So that meant that they could hear various things that were going on among conversations that many uh, enslaved people that were on plantations might not have had the opportunity to listen in on. And so being in love, they never wanted to have children in slavery. They refused to. So that was their driving desire to escape. I think we could also say that their story of escape begins earlier than that with Ellen Craft Mm. living in Clinton, Georgia, and being surrounded by examples of the slave culture, living in the home of the man who owned her, We know that Ellen was given as a lady's maid at age 11 to her half-sister. And as a lady's maid, she would, as Peggy pointed out, have been privy to the gossip going on among the planters. She would have been in the big house, intermingling with the white family on a very intimate level every day, picking up pieces of information maybe, we'll never know this, but maybe even picking up the rudiments of literacy. She would have been exposed to books. Her father, James Smith, was a lawyer. And incidentally, he also was at one time the interim schoolmaster for the Clinton Female Seminary. So there was a lot of culture in that household in Clinton, Georgia. And more and more, I think that that might have also planted the seeds in Ellen's mind Mm. of escape, of something better, something better, more better. Right. Yeah. I really want to see the the like film version of this, you know, like I don't, if it's like Zendaya and Daniel Kaluuya or like, or like uh, Rashida Jones and Idris Elba. Like, I feel like it's very, it's, you know, it's a love story and it's the kind of love story that we don't necessarily get to see because there is a lot of dynamism to all of the stories that exist within enslavement that we don't usually get in our education of it. I don't just say Ellen's father. I say Ellen's slave holding father yes. whenever I, yes refer to him, because that is the dynamic that is so different than just a regular father. And as we continue to use words that are not slave, but enslaved, I think we're changing the way in which we really look at that dynamic at that time. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's really good. Do we actually know what the meeting was between, uh, you know, William and Ellen? Like in my movie version, I'm like, oh, you know, she's in the house dusting something. She breaks it and he goes, oh, don't worry. I can fix that. You know, it's super cute. But like, I know I'm glossing over enslavement. So do we happen to know what the instance was? Yeah, we don't know the very moment when they met, but because they both were mobile and Ellen would, because she was a seamstress and a housemaid, she had been an able to go on errands in various places in the town, as was William. So this dynamic duo, these two people, with both of these exposures because of their situation, it it was a perfect uh, match in my mind compared to other enslaved couples who may have been at different 
points in their lives or different types of enslavement. So for Ellen and William, it was not unusual for either of them to be seen in and about the town. And that is one of the things that helps them when they escape, even though they're escaping in costume, which we'll talk about later, they were known to have an opportunity to have met. Where they actually met, I don't know. Ellen had her Mm. own little room off to the side of the house where William was able to visit. And so they were treated in some ways as a married couple, but they were still enslaved. So many people say, oh, they had it really good. Why did they need to run? Why did they need to leave? Why they weren't whipped every day. But the intensity of their feeling of enslavement and that they could not call the very bones and sinews of their bodies their own was the driving force for their wanting to leave what to other people might have seemed a better situation. Can you imagine what it must have been like, for example, for Ellen to spend morning to noon to sundown to the wee hours, primarily always within earshot, within eyesight of white people who owned her? Always under surveillance, always visible. They were her relations, you right. know, as well. Like there's, you know. Her half-sister. Exactly. And she can't treat her like a sister, right? No. She no. always has to remember that even though they are related by blood, and they know they're related by blood. One reason yes. why Ellen goes <laughs> to Macon with her half-sister is because people in Clinton who are white keep remarking on how she resembles the mm-hmm. man that owns her. I mean, that she becomes a source yeah. of embarrassment. So, Barbara, this is when, so as you said, so she becomes a source of embarrassment. And is this when Ellen's stepmother then gifts her to her sister? Absolutely. To sort of, you know, to mean her. Absolutely. It's, it's a very convenient way of getting her out of the picture. Life works in a miraculous ways by giving or gifting Ellen to her half-sister, what the Smith family does, as Peggy points out, is catalyze the first steps toward escape. Because Macon, again, we can never forget that Macon is a transportation hub. And it is therefore much easier to get away from Macon than it is from Clinton, Georgia, which relied primarily on carriage and on people moving up and down river to get in and out. I just wanted to clarify for myself to get this picture straight. So Ellen's stepmother sort of gives Ellen to the half-sister who lives elsewhere, uh, separate to them. She marries into the Collins family. Okay, and so goes with that family. Yes, she goes with that family to Macon. I understand. So that family is in Macon. Absolutely. And not only is Macon a huge hub of lots of things intersecting and crossing through, but Ellen's life has been a hub of lots of information and different input from different sort of echelons of society she would not otherwise have been privy to had she not been sort of born into this very niche situation, you know, in her family. Okay. So back to their daily lives. What do we know about William? We have to also always emphasize William's mobility, his intelligence, and his connections to the outside world. Mm. So as I said, it's a perfect balance. They, This dynamic duo actually energizes each other in different ways. Not only is there love there, 
but also their access to the wider world, as Barbara was saying, where they could put this into a place where they could say they can imagine where someplace they could live differently. Right. They yeah. don't know exactly where. They hear about the North. They're not part of the Underground Railroad as we know of it because they escape alone together, not having shared any of their plans with anyone else. So they formed a plan. Can you tell us a little bit about how the plan to escape actually came together, Barbara? Sure. Uh, There's a little bit of controversy surrounding that, as there isn't so much of their story. (laughs) Uh, But uh, William writes that uh, he came up with the bold idea of Ellen because she was fair-skinned, very light, and and had been around white people all of her life, she could masquerade as an elite white planter. If they cut her hair, dressed her in men's clothes, she could pretend that she was ill. Uh, She would wrap a bandage around her head so people wouldn't talk to her a lot. They thought of every contingency. What if she had to write? She couldn't write. So they put her arm in a sling, as if she were uh, had rheumatoid arthritis. She would pretend that she was going to Philadelphia to get the cure. In the mid-19th yeah. century, Philadelphia was the medical capital of America. It was where you went uh, when okay. all else failed. And if you had money, you went up to Philly for the doctors to work on you there. But we also have contradictory testimony from other abolitionists who said later on, Ellen said it was her idea. I really like that. (laughs) I really like, and it fits. It really fits Ellen's personality that she was always known to be outspoken, bold, to say what was on her mind. And I, I would love to believe that it was Ellen's idea. It's a bloody good idea. You would you would call it, wouldn't you? Like, that was me. Yeah, all right. Every yes. couple's going to quibble over who came up with it first. We have yeah. a picture here of Ellen and uh, Peggy. She looks so much like your great-great-grandmother. Uh, she, she has quite feminine features, so such a genius idea to disguise herself with the bandages. So she gets, so like, the fact that she looks like a woman, taken care of. Remember back at that time, most men had facial hair. Like they do yeah, today, right, that was yep. in vogue to have beards, mustaches. She couldn't grow a beard. No. Yeah. So they came up with the idea of wrapping a bandage around her face. It's ingenious. Yeah. And she wore also dark glasses. They had <laughs> they had spectacles back. They called them spectacles back then, yeah. not glasses. And they were tinted. Okay, so okay. you couldn't see her eye color either. If you thought you recognized her. Uh, You might have to look at her really closely. And she wasn't going to let anyone get too close to her. I love the theatricality of this. very theatrical. yeah. Yeah, I wanted to weigh in on that because their escape is what I focus on in my writing and my speaking. The power of performance of the escaping enslaved person. I call it their theater on the run. Because every moment they were having to invent what was going to happen based on circumstances. They had to be spontaneous. It is really improv when you think about it because they didn't know exactly who they were going to encounter. I come out of a theater and a film background, and so I see this intrinsically as live theater. Their intelligence comes through. Their long-range planning. 
they demonstrated in their operation in that four-day escape period, they didn't know who they were going to encounter on the steam boats and in the trains. And so they had to communicate with each other without making it seem like they were really intimate. Mm -hmm. Although, because William is, as her slave, very attentive, it is often criticized by the other whites that they encounter and saying, you're treating that slave too well, mister. Mm -hmm. You, You should treat him more like a boy. You should yell at him. You should tell him what to do. And so they have to constantly be in an improvisational spontaneity, but with their clear plan together of what they were going to do. And it's four days. Ellen is a male. Where does she use the bathroom? (laughs) How does she negotiate constantly in this disguise, in these clothes, in this environment that is constantly changing where she can't even see William sometime. He mm. has to ride in the baggage car. Oh, yeah, of course. She's on her back own. on the back of a wolf. Yeah. So, you know, their communication is spiritual. I mean, it's not only like a romantic partnership, but they've got this performance. Like, it's like comedy partners. I mean, I speak that language as well of like knowing someone and how they're going to react so well that you can kind of work together without being able to speak to one another, you know, and just adapt. And so what happens is the other people are the characters in their play. So before we do get into the story of uh, William and Ellen's escape, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about the fact that Ellen is uh, mixed race. How was it always rape? Were there there interracial romantic couples? Did that exist in any way? It gets very complicated and it changes over time. Again, going back to the 1840s in Macon, Georgia, mixed race black women were often sexualized. They were exoticized. Um, they mm, were often familiar. considered the most <laughs> the most valuable in terms of enslaved people on the market because of their sexuality and their allure. And we see examples of young mixed race black women being sold downriver, as they called it, sold to New Orleans precisely and expressly for the purpose of becoming sexual partners to rich white men. There was a trade in that. And these women were were always trained in the graces of etiquette, um, (sighs) manners. Many of them often had a rudimentary literacy, um, so they could seem to be ladies, but they weren't, of course, ladies. Um, They were little Mm. more than prostitutes. And and even worse, they they did not make any money. They did not benefit. Um, except for having more privileged positions and occasionally being able to negotiate having their children sent abroad, having their children sent to the North. But the idea that white men having relationships with Black women uh, unilaterally then freeing the women and freeing their children, it's a fantasy. It's a pretty fiction that I think we need to let go of. That generally did not happen. And so later in the 19th century, the idea evolves that Black people who have any strain of white blood are superior because white blood is superior, right? Yeah, I mean, and this yeah. and this completely trickles down to like my primary school life. You know what I mean? Yeah. This has <laughs> gone on forever. Yeah. Oh my goodness, yes. 
I just would love to ask Peggy, what was your experience of this, having this be part of your heritage, your story? How did you experience this? Because obviously I know that you uh, have done a lot of civil rights work yourself, just like growing up in your family. How do you feel like that affected your story or your family's narrative, if at all? I am a fair-skinned African-American woman. Both of my parents are Black, my grandparents. But obviously, back in my history, there was uh, white people, both on the craft side and on the trotter side. So I had to navigate, in Du Bois's terms, the double consciousness of being Black in America. I went to an all-white school where I had to stand up and talk about, no, slaves were not content and happy because I knew my family. You had to stand up and tell people this because that's how they were educating everyone else. Yes. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Peggy, I wish there was one of you in every school. I think that's what every school could have had. But let's go back to the story of uh, William and Alex. There is so much to talk about today and we've we've got to get through this unbelievable story because it's so brilliant. So Peggy, they've met, they've fallen madly in love, they've got married. They have formulated this amazing plan, right? They have come up with these disguises. They are on their way. How exactly do they make (laughs) this journey to Philadelphia? Because obviously, as you said, they're not on the Underground Railroad. Like, I don't know what is entailed from getting to Georgia, from Georgia to Philadelphia in the 1800s while you're in disguise. How did they do it? They're on every form of conveyance known then. Um, They travel, (laughs) literally, they travel by rail to Savannah. They get on a boat and they go up the East Coast up to Charleston. They get off at Charleston. They stay overnight in a hotel frequented by White planters, remember, Ellen is masquerading as an invalid white planter. So they're Mm -hmm. in the middle, in the belly of the beast, literally, um, wherever they go. When they leave Charleston, they take another overland route, a carriage, basically up to Mm -hmm. Wilmington, Delaware. And Mm. there things get really complicated because they have to uh, move through a series of trains between Delaware and Baltimore, and then from Baltimore to Philadelphia. At the time, Barbara, surveillance had been heightened uh, for fugitive enslaved people in the 1820s and 30s because of a string of revolts. So were there any close calls? Oh, there were numerous close calls. In fact, the very first close call almost put the kibosh on their escape before they even got on the railroad, the Central and Georgia Railroad in Macon. Because as they were going into their separate cars, as an enslaved person, uh, William would not be allowed to travel in the same car as his so-called master. As they are moving into their separate cars, William recognizes someone who knew them both. As Peggy pointed out, William and Ellen were well known. (sighs) In Clinton, Georgia. He recognizes Uh and they make eye contact. But for whatever reason... This person, and you know, expectation is everything. If you don't expect someone to be there, you know, I you I bet he was like three days later, like, oh, I knew I knew that face, and they were already gone. Probably so. 
Probably. Is that that house slave I know dressed up as a man with a fake? Exactly. I mean, you take you wouldn't take it. It's too far. It's too yeah. far. They're too. What they've done is too genius to just jump on. Yeah. So thinking about that close call, um, it makes me think of the conversations that Ellen would have been privy to as the white man that she was masquerading to be. You know, there's rampant hatred and disdain for black enslaved people and black people in general, and she's right in the middle of those conversations from time to time. Pat- Passengers sit down and they attempt to strike up conversations. This is the South. They're very congenial. And inevitably, those conversations turn back to enslaved people. And enslaved people are talked about as property. One woman complains to Ellen about an enslaved person who's escaped that she thought she had treated very well. And of course, you can imagine Mm. the irony of this conversation as Ellen is sitting there, actually an enslaved person thinking, you can't treat us well at all because we're not free. (laughs) And that is the reason why the crafts spend time talking about these kinds of encounters. Because over and over again, they want to show that White Americans at that time didn't get it. They didn't understand, too many of them, that Black Americans were human beings who had that same intrinsic drive as other human beings to be autonomous, to have agency, to be liberated, to be our own people, and to be free. My favorite encounter, though, is more comic. There's some comic relief here. For example, towards the end of their journey on one of the trains, a white planter is seated across from uh, Ellen with his two daughters on either side. And the young ladies become enamored of Ellen. Mm-hmm. They, see, they see Ellen as a single man who's available. And they start... <laughs> <laughs> with his head wrapped in bandages. Ooh, yeah. He's busted. <laughs> Because he's going to Philly to get treated. And they, they you enough. can see the dollar signs <laughs> yeah. flashing in their eyes. And they're flirting with him. And Ellen is sort of trying not to engage with them. And really trying not to burst out laughing because she they're imagines. They're looking at her like Justin Bieber. Like, oh, <laughs> a very yeah. feminine looking man with lots of right. money. Ooh. But Ellen, Ellen, Ellen sees the absurdity exactly. in the situation. It is very absurd. It's very ironic. And she does her best not to lead them on and not to engage them. Um, But she has, I think, a good time at that point. If only they knew who they were really talking to, how they would feel. I would guess that William is probably having his own experience and the other part of the train, you know, as far as like people going like, you know, you you want us to help you get away. And he's like, no, 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 I'm good. And they're like, why? (laughs) Actually, William is doing exactly that and getting a lot of information. He's talking Mm. to the people downstairs, if you will. Okay. He's talking to Mm. the boot blacks. He's talking to the African-Americans who are working in the hotels, most of them enslaved until they get across the Mason-Dixon line. Mm. He is doing what he did. I imagine what he did when he was a carpenter in Macon. He is picking up information. And occasionally a black person looks at him and says, you know, you need to escape. Yeah. So we imagine that he's picking up information along the way because by the time they get to Philadelphia, they know where to go. They know the abolitionists that they should ask for who will help them 
then negotiate the transition from enslavement to freedom. They meet William Still, the black abolitionist who really has made an invaluable contribution to our history because he wrote down the stories of the fugitives from slavery that he helped. I was going to say, and still had to keep those stories secret because they disclosed mm. a great deal yes. as they were telling him the story. So his book is not published until 1872 when those stories can be made public. And because if you're an escaping uh, enslaved person and you mention a town or you mention a certain crossroads or a certain plantation, then someone could go after your relatives there and try to find you who have escaped from there. But just to uh, drive us home toward this, they arrive, they do make it safely to Philadelphia. Right. Can you tell us when they arrive and what happens after that? Well, after that harrowing journey by rail, by carriage, by steamboat, they arrive in Philadelphia as if by magic on Christmas Day, 1848. Because they've been picking up information about abolitionists, they quickly connect to the anti-slavery community. They're taken to a farm outside Philadelphia where they stay for some months and they begin to learn how to read and write. But this, I think, is very exemplary of the crafts. They could have stayed in Philadelphia, which had a vibrant Black community, fugitives and free Black people, but they decide to go where the fight is. They go to Boston. That's why. I was like, why would you go to Boston? Like, no Black person is like, let's go be in Boston. Well, back in the 1840s, there was actually a community of 2,000 Black people living on Beacon Hill. Now, oh, we know, wow. yes, we know Beacon Hill now is the posh side of Boston. But in the 19th century, Beacon Hill was considered to be dangerous for your health because uh, it was so oh, close. So to- it got gentrified. Beacon Hill got gentrified. <laughs> gentrified. Yes. Like everything else. Everything yep. else. Okay. Tale as old as time. <laughs> Beacon Hill was the hub. And there, were, there, was, there was a school, the African Meeting House, a place where African-Americans gathered to talk about the political issues of the day. Everybody who was anybody in the anti-slavery movement came through Boston. And it's on the road to Canada. Yes. Which is out of American Uh, territory. So those in the Underground Railroad and many of those individuals who were trying to get as far north as they could through word of mouth, through all of the other uh, Mm. ways in which the enslaved and the free and the anti-slavery community communicated, that's always been an option. So when you get to Boston, you're in Massachusetts, right? Yes. And you can just make yeah. your way through those woods. That drive north, that that feeling that yeah. I'm going north to be free, the North Star, our yeah. spirituals yes, exactly. that sing the songs that were the codes that engendered a lot of the escape plans, that North Star is... is Frederick Douglass, you know, talks about is always in the sky, giving them a sense that there's somewhere else where I can be free. It isn't very long after they settle in Boston that their uh, enslaver, Robert Collins, stirs up a lot of mess in relationship to them. He's very embarrassed having lost having lost um, these two. 
And he actually writes a public letter to the president at the time, Willard Fillmore, and says, Fillmore. you have to mm -hmm. do something. This is property. And I'm speaking for all of the Southern planters who keep losing property to the North. This is property. We are Americans. What are you going to do to help us get our property back? And so the fugitive slave law is passed in 1850. And that makes every fugitive who managed to cross over into the free states a target. That's why being closer to Canada is more Oh, important. my God. And to the level of there is a bounty on their heads. Yes, at there this is point. That, definitely a yeah. bounty on their heads. And now we're hearing that they, they, they don't go they to, didn't Canada. Stay to Canada. They, at all. <laughs> they go to England. They come here. Yes, they where, do. Where? Where in England? First, they. You know, they are in in Boston from 1848 to 1850. And then the Fugitive Slave Act is passed, as Barbara said, and they know they're not safe. So they are in communication with more of the British anti-slave movement through various people like Frederick Douglass, who has already lectured in the British Isles and others. So they see England as a safe place to be? Safer so than the United States, for sure. Well... In 1838, England has abolished the slave trade. So it is, even though we know that it probably was still going on, legally it was abolished in 1833 through the British Slave Act. So they know that they can be in a country where there is no longer slavery legal. So what they do is they go to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and there they experience some prejudice already in Canada, and they take a vessel and cross over the Atlantic Ocean. Ellen is not well. She is at a place which I can only imagine after having gone through all of these things. William says in their narrative that he was very concerned for her health, and they arrive in Liverpool, England sometime in late 1850. I think it's December, isn't it, Barbara? Yes, it's December. Oh, God, December in yeah. Liverpool. I wonder, too, yeah. if Ellen might have even been pregnant. I there wondered that, too. There are a lot of silences. Uh, there are a lot of silences yeah. around babies yeah. in, in yeah. yeah. So they get to Liverpool, and they become a part of the British anti-slavery movement. And again, this is where the couple and their theater on the run takes different approaches because William does a great deal of the speaking and Ellen is more quiet on the stage. But a British author who's written a great deal about anti-slavery movement in England begins to talk about how the way in which they use Ellen's whiteness, her quietness, mm -hmm. her femininity is all part of the Victorian way to appeal to the white society there to get their sympathy uh, for course. getting people to be against slavery. And so Ellen is often not as outspoken, but she does speak. And so we begin to get a picture, a contradictory picture, as Barbara was indicating, of how in ways that the crafts continue to use their communication, their skills, and their incredible intelligence to get people to help work against slavery, including 1851, where they're a part of the Great Exhibition. And in the Great Exhibition, 
William and Ellen are a part of trying to get a dialogue going among the Americans who are visiting the exhibition about slavery. And the Americans are too embarrassed. They don't buy it. So England becomes an incredible platform for how the crafts continue to use their ingenious ability of their theater on the run. And they continue to look for their families. Because William had also um, unbelievably, I mean, unbelievably, it happened all the time. He had suffered the awful fate of being ripped from his siblings at 16. So he knew what it was like to have a family torn apart in front of him and being part of it. Yes, he saw his, his sisters and brothers sold on the auction block and he was helpless. And they knew that they had no control over whatever child they might have because of it. They were right. belonged, quote unquote, to their masters. And it goes back to enslavement. It, it just, just because you're not being brutalized every day does not mean that these horrendous situations will occur, which is we could sell your kids, though. So yeah, another reason to get the hell out. <laughs> and it also <laughs> speaks to a custom that we have among ourselves where we say sister or brother, Absolutely. auntie. And yes. uncle, because we, yes. Really, yes. we really don't know yes. who our sisters and no. brothers yeah. and aunts and uncles were. But that longing for knowing who your family and who your history is, is so deeply ingrained. Well, it's a testament to, you know, how hard William and Ellen fought to not have their family, their progeny, go through what they had been through, what they'd seen so many other people go through. And they're still living this performance, as you said, sort of Ellen's gentility is seen as like, oh, that's a performance of her not saying anything and not doing yes. anything. And that's what we respect. Whereas William is being very outspoken to, you know, as an enslaved uh, black man to people in Africa and as well as the UK, it sounds Something like. Something to think about is that it takes almost 10 more years after William and Ellen Craft arrive in England before they publish their book which is uh, not typical. Usually we see formerly enslaved people arrive in England and within two years they have a book out. Uh, William Ellen Craft take much longer. That lengthy road to publication does not in any way detract from their story because they use themselves like other fugitives from slavery, Douglas Brown, to tell their story. What people in England want to do is more than anything else is to see enslaved mm. people. Because so they're on tour. Yes, they're yeah. on tour. And their bodies. Okay, they're busy on tour. Living testimony, firsthand, irrefutable evidence mm. of what slavery yeah. was like because they have lived it. Uh, they can yeah. stand right. in front of audiences and say, slavery in all of its corrupt in all of its heinousness, in all of its cruelty is real. But you can also see that we are not brutes, that we are not hypersexualized, that we are not yeah. uncouth and chaotic. We're standing in front of you neatly dressed, soft-spoken, articulate, intelligent, logical. Yeah. Their bodies were marketed by them. I mean, I love the way they turn the tables. Exactly. Yeah, they created their own autonomy. Well, yeah, and in kind of in keeping what Peggy's talking about, about this sort of like performance on the run, you know, they not only toured, they've published, but they apparently had merch. Yeah. Tell me about the merch. The merch that I believe you're referring to <laughs> is the uh, image of Ellen Craft 
and it's an engraving, oh. which means it's based on a photograph wow. that at some point, probably yeah. when they were in Boston, she sat for a daguerreotype or a tintype or some kind of image, a photographic image of herself in her disguise. So they were thinking about how to market themselves and they made engravings of this image and they sold these engravings for five shillings when they gave talks and then later when they circulated a pamphlet before the book appears in 1860 and then in 1861, there was a pamphlet a book published by the Leeds Anti-Slavery Society telling the story of William and Ellen Craft. And that was circulated as well. Pamphlet is cheaper than a book. Right. It's like a program. Yes. They did make money from these uh, public appearances, and they made even more money because of the pamphlet, because of the engraving. The engraving was wildly popular. And it, it's so popular that, of course, they use it as the frontispiece for their book opposite the title page. And it has become indelibly associated with Ellen Craft. They're consciously and deliberately using the tools and techniques that are coming out in these Victorian times and they are using them to their advantage along with others. They're learning, as Barbara said, what ways can we get to the conscience? How can we imprint in their minds a visual picture to counteract what the other images of enslavement have been? What was passed down to us as a family are very few actual memorabilia, but I do believe that there's a gentility, there's a, a, a desire for education and literacy, service to the community. Those are the things that are signature parts of William and Ellen's life that we as a family continue to this day to speak around the country. And Peggy, this. these people that you're mentioning now, they are part of the, uh, the descendants of the five children that William and Ellen end up having. So where, where are these descendants, apart from your lo lovely self, where are your descendants today and what kind of things are they doing? How did you make it back from the UK? Yeah, and how come you're not, how come you're not here anymore? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a descendant of first and the eldest son, Charles Phillips Esselin Craft. He was born in 1852, I believe. And my grandfather was his first grandson. So my mother is the great granddaughter and I'm a great, great granddaughter. There are nine of us that are great, great grandchildren. And there were four great grandchildren. So the family descendants are mostly in the United States. Yeah, the story just gets better and better, doesn't it? I guess just in summary, I'd love to ask each of you what this story means to you, why it is important to you. So I, I'll start with Barbara. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. They leave Georgia because they want to have security for their family. They stay together through thick and thin throughout their lives, and they pass down that value of strong families. They keep searching family members throughout um, their lives and freedom. They understand that family is important to the growth of the individual, but also it's a political message. By valuing their families, they're pushing back against the idea that as African Americans, it was okay for us to be sold because we didn't really care about the bonds of parenthood and the bonds of sibling relationships. It speaks to our humanity. 
And Peggy, same question. What does this story mean to you? This story for me is a love story. It's an adventure story. It's a story about collaboration and alliances across cultures, across places that you may not think there are alliances. And as a family, we have imbibed that so deeply because of the crafts. It also is a story of never giving up, no matter what the circumstances. And when we face obstacles today, as we do in this society, I have four great-grandchildren, nine grandchildren, and I feel an obligation that came through from my mother and her sister and the original great-grandchildren that we have this opportunity to take our story and have it inspire others, not only to continue their lives, but to tell their own stories. But it's such a beautiful, beautiful way to to end this incredible story. Barbara and Peggy, thank you so much for sharing this with us today. Honestly, it's a story that everyone should know and hear and, you know, be inspired by. So I feel really lucky that we got to hear it today properly from from descendants from Ellen and William, a descendant from Ellen and William. It's just such an honour for me. Absolutely. And I hope that it inspires other people listening, as you said to find their own stories and to share their own stories. There's so much that can still be retrieved and should be shared and celebrated and passed on. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was really lovely. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for doing this series. Nikita, we've come to the end of this incredible series. I know. I mean, it, it's actually been like such a trip, like um, quite literally a, a yeah. journey yes. <laughs> through a, 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 some incredible history and some incredible stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, emotional highs and lows, but always so reaffirming to hear the truth. Yes. You know? What were some of your favorite moments? Well, now that I'm thinking about it, because obviously this story today is just sitting with me so much. I yeah. absolutely love the ingenuity of this couple and, and their love and their strength and their courage. And their theatricality. Uh, yes. I love that so much. I was like, show people. I yeah. get this. Yes. <laughs> but then, of course, I absolutely loved um, talking to Dr. Rebecca Hall and and learning about the female warriors re-steering the boat back yes. to Sierra Leone. Yep. Turned it around. Come Come on. That was wonderful. What, what if you don't start acting up, yeah. I'm going to take this boat right back home. No, I love, I love we're just going to keep two of you because you need to steer us yeah, back. Yeah, exactly. The rest of you guys can die in a boat fire. Oh, and of course, uh, when we heard about Peggy being sort of part of the that resistance, that interesting resistance that we heard about, which is basically, nah. I ain't I ain't opening the door anymore. And yes, I will sleep in your bed. That yes. was that was a really unusual resistance that was, story. Uh, I, yes, I mean that was just a beautiful day of people being like, you know what? Nope. And just like <laughs> yeah. I'm taking this bed. I'm taking your ribbons. Yes. I'm I'm not answering the door, and I'm breaking all of your crystal because yeah. this is going to be a good time. And I loved I loved learning about Nanny and the Maroons mm. and everything. It, like because so much of the diaspora in the Caribbean is not a story that I'm familiar. with. 
with right. and to hear. And I mean, especially the Haitian Revolution, like this is really where it was kicking off constantly. Yeah. And I just felt like so I didn't realize how deprived I'd felt of those stories until I got them. After learning all these things, there's like there's only one thing to do, Desiree. We, we must live powerful, huge lives now. Do yeah. you know what I mean? There's so much to do yes, with how is. much we've learned. Yeah. There's so much to do to leave the stories that need to be told after us. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on this amazing journey of exploration. I just think we've learned so much and we've laughed a lot, which I didn't <laughs> think we'd do. Yeah. And I have found just a new, deeper appreciation for our ingenious badass ancestors yeah it has been quite an intense time quite informative moving exhilarating inspiring and totally eye-opening thank you all so much for listening if you haven't watched the barry jenkins series it's poignant and powerful and it's on amazon prime video now don't forget to follow or subscribe to the podcast Escape, the Underground Railroad podcast, is a something else production for Prime Video UK. Iwan Obanyan and Isis Thompson are the series producers. Alexis Adimora is a sound designer, and the executive producer is Peggy Sutton.